Welcome to Chromo Diversity, a podcast for clinicians, therapists, and families about common genetic diversity in children and adults. I'm Elliot Pollack, founder of the Chromo Diversity Foundation, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm with Lara Bloom. Lara is the president and CEO of the Ehlers-Danlos Society and responsible for globally raising awareness of rare, chronic, and invisible diseases, specializing in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome's hypermobility spectrum disorders, HSD, and related conditions. Lara manages coordinated medical collaboration, raising funds for research, and focusing on the global progression of EDS and HSD. She speaks at conferences all over the world, lecturing to medical students and professionals, and support specialists in the field by offering her expertise as a leading patient expert. Lara was officially appointed as a professor of practice in patient engagement and global collaboration at Penn State College of Medicine, USA in 2020. Hello, Lara. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Before we start, Lara, I'd like to ask you something about the logo of the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome Society. Can you mm -hmm. tell us why it is a zebra? Absolutely. Well, you say zebra, I say zebra, but it's the same thing. So the zebra represents broadly rare diseases. When medical students are taught about diseases in medical school, they're taught to think horses, not zebras. They're taught to think the common and not the rare. And so what we're trying to do is say, please think about zebras, please think about the rare, the unusual, and that will increase diagnosis. It's also because there's not two types of zebras with the same stripes. Every single zebra has unique stripes. And Everyone with EDS has different experiences and different symptoms. But yet when you see a zebra, you know it's a zebra. We want to get to the point where when a doctor sees someone with EDS or HSD, they know it's EDS and HSD. And the last reason, which is my favorite, is a group of zebras together is called a dazzle. And we are trying to dazzle at the society to change things. The Ehlers-Danlos Society is the leading advocacy and support organization in the world for people with EDS and HSD. What is the mission of your association and who is part of its community? So at the society, we care. We focus on care, access, research and education. So everything we do has those priorities weaved into them. Our community is anyone that is experiencing symptoms related to EDS and HSD. It could be someone with one of the rarer types. It could be someone who's not yet diagnosed, who believes that they may be. It could be someone who has been diagnosed many years ago and is only just experiencing issues. So it's all ages, it's all countries, it's all experiences. And we're trying to do what we can to give that support, the education, the resources to all. But also a huge part of our community are health healthcare professionals. So we're really trying to be the one place that health professionals, again, all different disciplines, all different countries can come to to learn, to educate, to speak to other people like them, to learn best practices. That's really what our focus is and, and who we're doing it for. How did the Ehlers Danlos Society get started? It's quite an interesting story. So historically, I ran the UK um, organisation EDS UK from 2010 to 2015. Around 2015, I realised that really to make real systemic changes, we had to look through a global lens. A lot of work can be done on a national level, but it's a little bit like putting what we call a plaster, what Americans call a Band-Aid on the issue. And we really wanted to try and see if we could heal this wound instead of just doing a quick fix. So I spoke to what was then the US organization EDNF, 
I was sitting on their board of directors with an international focus in my position there. And I said, you know, I really think we need to set up a global organization. And they said, we agree. That's our priority too. And they were willing to fund my salary for a year to get an international organization set up. And we very, very quickly realized that we were going to have a very similar mission to EDNF. We were going to be going after similar donors, similar community, and it may just get confusing. So we decided instead to relaunch EDNF as the Ellis Danlos Society with a brand new global mission and a new focus. And so it wasn't, although it wasn't a brand new organization, it was a brand new mission. Um, so we've got the benefits of actually being an organization with roots back to the 80s with fantastic people that are still involved that have been there since day one and having a brand new mission and focus that's very relevant to the needs of today. Why is an organization like yours so important for those people with genetic differences like EDS? I think it's very easy to feel alone when you've given a a diagnosis. Often it's off the back of a long diagnostic odyssey as well. The average diagnosis time for EDS and a lot of other rare conditions is 10 to 12 years. So if you imagine you've kind of been in the wilderness for a decade plus, and we like to provide a place to come home to where there's other people like you, where you can meet other people like you, where caregivers, parents, siblings, partners can come for support as well. It's incredibly important. And, you know, there've been various studies to prove the importance of community when living with a chronic or rare condition. Who supports your organization financially? It's largely individual donors, although we are at all times seeking grants to help support the mission as well. You've mentioned the diagnostic odyssey. What's the biggest challenge in getting to that point of diagnosis? Well, EDS and HSD, they're multi-systemic conditions. So when you go to often primary care doctors, it's very overwhelming and it's hard to reach a diagnosis because the symptoms that are presented can often mean various things. So getting that diagnosis is hard. I also think that there's not enough healthcare professionals educated in in the condition. And that's what we're trying to change through EDS Echo, which is our all teach, all learn mentoring program for healthcare professionals, which has been a triumph. We've educated over a thousand healthcare professionals through that in the last year or so. So we're doing a lot to change that. But still, you're fighting decades of neglect. There's a lot of work to do. There's also the issue that there's no kind of FDA approved treatment there's no cure for EDS and HSD, but there's a hell of a lot you can do for management. But there's not that many doctors that are aware of what that management can look like. So often people are diagnosed and then it's kind of either live with it, you know, or they're not aware of the condition and they perhaps prefer, perform surgeries that aren't best recommended for someone with EDS or they recommend options that aren't best for someone with EDS. They offer physio that's not best for a hypermobile body. So really getting expert care. But there's not actually, the irony is there's no such thing as an EDS expert. Any doctor can care for someone living with these conditions. They just need to learn how. And it's not difficult. So it's just doctors being willing to learn, take on board, realise the severity of it, the complexity of it, the diversity of it, and how complex it can be and how one person can be thriving and have no issues but still meet the diagnostic criteria. Another person could be unable to get out of bed, need to use a wheelchair and be very symptomatic. It doesn't change the validity of the diagnosis. Everyone's experience is real and there's no right or wrong way to have this condition. 
How is it diagnosed? I understand that you've participated in the international classification of the different types of EDS and that there may be 13 or so different types. Yeah, it is very complex. And for the hypermobile type and for HSD, it's based on a clinical diagnosis. So you do need to have someone that is experienced in that. And, you know, you go to, a, like I was saying, often primary care you've got IBS symptoms one day, you've got a dislocating knee the next, not everyone would put the two together. So it's really looking holistically at your full picture, your full medical experience. And that's what's often not done. People are just treated in the moment and there's not a lot of time. Uh, there's not the correct amount of time given that's a broad problem across healthcare systems all over the world with every condition. There's actually now 14 types of EDS, 13 published. We're looking to update the classification this year, actually, because one was discovered since 2017. So 13 of the 14 have a genetic marker on those. So we know what the variant is and it is a simple test. But getting that simple test is not easy either. So even with the very the rare and the ultra rare types of EDS, there's still miss and under diagnosis happening. And then you come to the hypermobile type, which currently there's no genetic marker for, although there's a lot of research going into changing that. And I'm optimistic that won't be the case for much longer. But that could also be much more prevalent. At the moment, published, the broad kind of overall amount of EDS across all the types is one in 5,000. And we still use that number because there's no evidence yet to change that other than we think that it is much more prevalent than that in the hypermobile form. However, it's still very difficult to distinguish between HSD and hypermobile EDS. And any papers that have attempted to get a more accurate prevalence figure have combined the two. And so they're not accurate figures. And so it's a bit like we need to be patient. We've got a big research study going on at the moment, defining the criteria for HSD and for hypermobile EDS to look at the work that was done in 2017 to see if any updates are needed. Once that's done, once the outcomes of the hedge study, which is looking at markers for the uh, genetic markers for the hypermobile type, will be in a much better place to then do prevalence studies. Try and break it down more into type prevalence. So each type has its own prevalence figure and truly say and really ascertain, is this this actually a common condition or is it still rare, but less rare than, say, you know, one of the rarer types? Lots of work to do there. It seems that quite a few people have the sentiment that it may be much more common, perhaps one in 500. Is that hypothetically possible? And is that what you're trying to ascertain? So I think that's definitely possible with HSD. I think we're already saying that that is prevalent. That's not a rare condition. HSD is not rare, but hypermobile EDS is much more difficult to say that too. I think it could be one in 500, one in a thousand. I've heard one in 200, but it's all guesstimates. And I don't like that game. <laughs> I like evidence-based published research and we support that and we do everything we can to make sure that that's what is out there. But unfortunately, that comes with having to wait a bit longer and be patient. And that's also really difficult when you're living with a condition that often it being so rare, people think that that leads to it being harder to diagnose. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that the knowledge and the awareness is out there much more than ever before. I think we're battling issues with coming out and still being in a pandemic. Things were improving drastically before COVID. 
and have now gone backwards. I, there was a lot more funding. There were a lot more high-level conversations going on in government, in the NHS with the UK. It's all stopped because of COVID. So I think that it's not as simple as once people realise how prevalent this is, everything will change overnight. I think things like updated criteria, updated published papers on prevalence and a genetic variant that we can prove is associated with it, those are the things that will help. And if those things then lead to us realising it's more prevalent, then great. There's no benefit for us as an organisation to push that it's rare if it's not. We want to just push what's evidence-based and factual information. And if that ends up to be more prevalent, then fantastic. I think it will be. I think 100% HSD is, but I think we've got a long way to go. But I hope within the next five years, the landscape will look very different. Are there any flashing signs of EDS? So I think that that's half the problem because there's a lot of things that you can have that even might all come together. That still doesn't mean you've got EDS. So what we ask people to do is look at the diagnostic criteria. And that is looking at the Baton score, which measures hypermobility, family history, medical history, tissue fragility, your skin. It's when the comorbidities come into it, things like POTS, the GI issues, cervical issues, mast cell issues, that there isn't yet enough evidence to show that that leads to a diagnosis. And a lot of the community find a lot of frustration in that. But the work that's going into assessing the new criteria is looking at whether there is now enough published evidence out there that those can become part of the diagnostic criteria. So as best we know today, there are 14 different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. What is the commonality between those 14? Why are they grouped under one umbrella? It's, that's the kind of fancy answer that you're better asking a geneticist, but it's clinical presentation and it's how it's, you know, the genetics are established, but there is a consistency there of hypermobility and skin involvement. And that's one thing that links the majority of the types of EDS together. But that is being assessed all the time. Types could be added, types could be taken away. It's actually being discussed all the time as new things are discovered. But it is that joint hypermobility and that skin presentation, that tissue fragility that unites them together. I understand that there's now some research that may be linking higher incidence also of neurodevelopmental differences such as autism, perhaps ADHD. This is also something we see in other common chromosomal differences. To what degree is, does evidence show the linkage? You're right. There's really interesting research coming out about these links. And I think more research is, is definitely needed. It's another example of at what point is there enough to include that in a criteria and to really acknowledge it. It's really been only in the last few years that the papers have been coming out to support the anecdotal conversations that have been there. There are fantastic people working in these areas. We've got lots and lots of recordings and presentations and resources on our website about this. But ultimately, what I say about all of these things, whether it's the neurodiversity 
symptoms and presentations or the mast cell or the dysautonomia or, you know, the GI issues. People understandably worry so much about getting a diagnosis because that validation is so important. But what is more important than that is getting your symptoms managed. And that goes for doctors and patients. Just because a doctor believes in their opinion that this cluster of comorbidities presented together to them doesn't fulfill an EDS diagnosis, that's kind of not important because those symptoms are still there and they need to be treated. And whether people have very physical symptoms, psychological symptoms, whatever they are and whatever the cause is, it doesn't matter. What matters is helping someone with those symptoms. And so, yes, the absolute driving force that we're trying to do is to get people diagnosed when symptoms begin. But we also know the reality of how challenging that is in the world we live in today and the inequitable care that there is all out all over the world. And so what we're trying to push as well is that even in the absence of a diagnosis, even in the absence of a doctor willing to agree that EDS or HEDS or HSD is a thing that needs a diagnosis, your symptoms still need to be managed. And so I think that it's really, really important for the work to be going in parallel. One side looking at whether this is associated, what causes the correlation, the other side making sure that no matter what, we define it, find out and whatever's decided that people's symptoms are managed and cared for. Even if there is an element of psychological involvement and that, you know, we've seen an increase published in anxiety and depression, EDS and HSD. Often that is because of the journey that they have taken to get to that point. Right. You know, it's back to that diagnostic odyssey, not being believed, told it's in their head, told it they're a hypochondriac. That's not going to not have an effect. That's going to impact you psychologically. It's also going to impact you physically. And people often are so much more deconditioned and symptomatic than they need to be because they've been left for so long. Then there's also the element that, as I said, we have seen that there is an increase in anxiety and depression. And I believe that no matter what condition you are diagnosed with, if you're diagnosed with something chronic, long-term, rare, usually that comes with no cure or treatment, how is it that anyone can think that you don't need psychological support to deal with that? So some people might choose to not take it, but I believe that that should be an absolute given that is offered to you as standard, as part of a pathway to deal with your diagnosis every time, in every country, in every type of EDS and HSD. And some people can say, you know what, I'm OK. I don't need it. No problem. But most, I think, will be very grateful to take that help because it's a lot to deal with to take on that burden of knowing that you've got a condition for the rest of your life that may not ever have a cure that may not ever have a treatment that's a lot to get your head around no matter who you are and there's also this side that for some reason I still don't truly understand what but EDS has got this sticky stigma to it that generationally older doctors would be like you're just a bit bendy it doesn't mean anything it's over medicalized people are attention seeking through adding all these titles and diagnoses and so on to it. So it's also got that stigma to it. I remember a decade ago having a stand at a conference, a genetics conference, and doctors walking past and being like, why are you here? You know, this is not a condition that should be 
seen in this way versus five years ago having a queue of people wanting our information and resources. So times are changing. It is improving. It is getting better. But there's definitely, like I said, we have decades of neglect to get through. So things aren't going to happen overnight. And that includes this stigma that is associated and people being wrongly accused of it not being a very physical, real condition. It's definitely happening less, but a lot of work to do. Some of that, from what you said earlier, may in part be due to the high variability one can live with relatively easily manageable differences. And in other cases, comorbidities can accumulate and it can lead to death. Absolutely. And we see a lot of suicides as well in the community, which is, is heartbreaking as well. Yeah, there's a huge spectrum when it comes to EDS, every type. And that comes back to our zebra. You know, every zebra has different stripes and different experiences, different support around them, different financial capabilities you know unfortunately we know that right now in every condition wealth and geography largely determine your quality of life and that is true for eds as well and hsd so it is frustrating but we just have to hope things are going to improve well one argument sometimes given for not attempting to diagnose a genetic difference is that well if there's no treatment for it or cure then why diagnose it yeah. So I think validation is everything. People underestimate just what it means to go into a doctor's room and be listened to and believed. It can sometimes feel like a cure and a treatment, especially after often a decade or more of not being believed. So I say to every health professional listening out there, don't ever underestimate what even five minutes of just listening and validating someone's experience can, can lead to. You know, when you're constantly battling of believe me, understand me, just walking away with a reason for everything you've been feeling for often so long. It means so much and it can often be the first step to rebuilding a quality of life because up until that point you didn't know what was wrong, you didn't know if you could push your body, you didn't know if you could go to the gym, go to physio, try this diet, try that diet. You know, Once you've got that diagnosis and it's confirmed, you can then look about how you can best help manage yourself because so much of a chronic condition is self-care anyway. There's very little doctors can do. But that first point of validation is the best thing they can do and it's the best gift they can give any patient. It really is incredibly important. What advice would you give to someone who's just been diagnosed or parents whose child has just been diagnosed? I would say have hope. There is a lot out there that can improve your quality of life. There's a lot out there that can mean you can live the life that you hoped for. But there's often things that mean that you need to change and pivot. My dreams and my hopes and my ambitions changed when I was diagnosed, but I still live an incredible life and a better life than perhaps I would have done. So never be scared that you might have to pivot and make those changes. I would say to family members and caregivers, support that person. They're going to go on a journey. They're going to go on a journey of joy and acceptance of that diagnosis. And then maybe rage and sadness and depression and anxiety that suddenly, oh God, okay, well now I've got this diagnosis and this sucks. And there could be people that are just like, okay, now I'll get on with my, my day and, and my life. You know, every, every experience is different, but just let that experience be 
their experience. Like I said before, there's no right or wrong way. Just because someone might go to the gym, eat the perfect diet, you know, do everything they need, they still might not have a good quality of life. There's no guarantees in that. And there's other people that don't do any movement at all and, and will do. So it, it's it, be kind, you know, be kind to people, be patient, be understanding, be supportive. And of course, you can turn to the society at any time where you'll find a community, virtual support groups, hybrid conferences, people you can talk to, people you can react to, a registry you can join to take part in research to help make those changes in the future. There's a lot that can be done and there's a lot that you can do as someone with the diagnosis or supporting someone with it. Community is everything. It's been a fantastic support for me. I see it daily being a, fat a fantastic support for others. You know, we have on average 50 to 70 people join our virtual support calls every week from all over the world, all different experiences. Always one of my favourite things is being at a conference and watching someone see someone else with their condition for the first time. Mm. Because I remember that being me, you know, back in 2004 when I was first diagnosed at the age of 24, walking into a conference and being like, wow, I'm not alone. And there's other people like me out there. It's incredibly rewarding and validating to do that. And it's such a pleasure to be able to provide that for people. What needs to be done to get to a greater critical mass of awareness? I think it's a mix of things. So, you know, we need to work better on education. So when medical students are trained, it's more than a paragraph. We're working on that. I think we need to provide more resources, which we have been doing and will continue to do. We have things, like I said, like EDS Echo which is all teach all learn and people bring their de-identified case studies so it's moving knowledge not patients and that's incredible and I recommend anyone out there listening to either tell your doctors or if your doctors yourself please join it's it's an incredible resource CME approved it's fantastic and just building more and more things like that you know we have healthcare providers turning up at our conferences every year year on year and that number's increasing so we just need to keep at it we need to keep educating. We need to get it in mainstream media. You know, there's a lot of celebrities that have come out talking about living with it, which also helps with awareness. So just need to keep on doing what we're doing. How do you work with clinical and research organizations? So we've funded about six and a half million dollars in research in the last three, four years. So four years. So we've funded a lot of people out there doing the research that's needed. And we've collaborated with um, a couple of labs to do work in the genetics, proteomics, epigenetics, things like that. So we're here and open to work with anyone out there that wants to progress the understanding of these conditions. It comes with the funding need. So, you know, that's what we're trying to do, raise as much money as we can to fund the research out there that's needed on the ground. You just mentioned epigenetics. Do you see this on a horizon of 10 years that we may have treatments that don't exist today? Absolutely. Maybe even sooner. I think the next decade is going to be incredibly exciting, not just for EDS, but for lots of rare conditions out there. The science is really picking up pace. Whole genome sequencing has never been more affordable to do as well. Proteomics is becoming something that I'm seeing more and more of. Same with epigenetics. It's really looking deeper at, at those genes and really understanding what you can discover about how things are expressed and seeing a pattern there. And I think that that's going to really unveil a lot of understanding and, and as you said, lead to treatments, lead to 
diagnostic tools and let's one day hope lead to a cure. I think the two big things that I really want to do, the one of them we can start immediately and we're seeking funding for is a natural history study. Really, truly understanding that. People ask if it's a degenerative condition, if it gets worse with age and genetically know that we can see, but the reality is deconditioning and people's life experience. Does that impact things? Really understanding that evolvement of the condition. And then, of course, like I said, once we're a bit clearer with the genetics and the and the criteria, doing prevalent studies. So to me, those two things will really be very beneficial long term for the community. What's next on your agenda in terms of events? So we have a virtual conference, one day virtual conference in April on HSD. Tickets are on sale now. We have a three day hybrid conference in Dublin, uh, our global learning conference that happens every year around the world. Last year was in Arizona, this year in Dublin and Ireland. Unbelievable lineup of speakers. Check out our website and also very inclusive because you can join virtually as well. And then we have a two day virtual conference in I want to say September, I believe, on fatigue. But everything is on our website, www.airless-danlos.com. All of our events, all of our virtual support groups, all of our previous events and the recordings, uh, ways to get on the registry, ways to get involved, resources, things that can help. Go and visit that. www.ailers-danlos.com is the place to go. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, Lara. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining this episode of Chromodiversity with Lara Bloom, President and CEO of the Ehlers-Danlos Society. As you heard, although historically seen as a rare genetic difference of relatively minor importance and largely ignored by the medical community, it seems likely that Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is potentially far more common than previously thought particularly in its 14th hypermobility form, although prevalence remains to be confirmed. Fortunately, thanks to improved classification of symptoms and better awareness of its high variability, EDS is starting to be taken more seriously by medical professionals and diagnosis is increasing. This matters because although treatments are still lacking, Diagnosis alone can provide enormous relief by putting an end to long diagnostic odysseys, providing validation, and giving access to supportive communities. Diagnosis also allows to avoid potentially damaging mistreatments, benefit from better self-management and care, and participate in groundbreaking research that offers hope for the future. Perhaps the biggest single takeaway is that thanks to Larry's success in unifying the Ehlers-Danlos Society into a single global organization, it's been able to raise many millions of dollars for research, act as a single go-to source of authoritative information and support, accelerate medical awareness and diagnosis while fast-tracking the perspective of potential treatments and cures. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did recording it. Please show your support by donating today. With your help, we will ensure an easy listening experience so you can access engaging and authoritative information on common genetic diversity in children and adults, notified to you weekly in your inbox. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Chromodiversity Season 3 and have a wonderful day.